Welcome back to By the Great Horn Spoon by Sid Fleshman. This is Chapter 9, The Man in the Jippa Jappa Hat. It was about a week before Praiseworthy and Jack reached the diggings. They had caught the four o'clock riverboat at the end of the long wharf. Dr. Buckby came to see them off, but he was staying behind in San Francisco. I'm going to wait for Cut-Eye Higgins, he said. He's bound to turn up with my map. I'll meet every ship that comes in until I get my hands on that scoundrel. That night in their stateroom, Jack polished his horn spoon. Praiseworthy had let him buy it on the wharf with a pinch of gold dust. Finally, Jack tucked it inside his belt and looked at himself in the mirror. All he lacked was a red flannel shirt and a floppy hat. A beard was out of the question, at least for the time being. He glanced at Praiseworthy. He wondered what his partner would look like with his whiskers grown out and a revolver in his belt. Praiseworthy was as tall as Quartz Jackson and as straight as an awning post. There were even sun creases forming in the corners of his eyes. Yes, sir, Jack thought Praiseworthy would make a fine-looking gent. Their adventure in barbering had paid expenses nicely. There was gold dust left over, and Praiseworthy had poured it into the little finger of his left white glove for safekeeping. He had made a list of the gold camps the miners had bandied about, and now he studied the names. Chili Gulch, Grizzly Flats, Timbuktu, he muttered. They sound like dreadful places to take a growing boy. They sounded glorious to Jack. Don't worry about me, praiseworthy. I'm thinking of your Aunt Arabella. What would she think if you write from a place like Bedbug or Whiskey Flat or Hangtown? Angel's Camp, she might approve of that, but they say it's a fearful place. Let me see. There's Rough and Ready, there's You Bet, and there's Humbug. Not to mention Rawhide. Roaring camp and cutthroat. Well, what'll it be, Master Jack? One place sounds as bloodthirsty as the next. Hangtown, said Jack. Then Hangtown it is, said Praiseworthy. The following morning, Jack saw Indians for the first time in his life. They came to the banks of the river to watch the crowded boat and listen to the ringing of its pilot house bell. Jack stared back in fascination. Wouldn't his sisters Constance and Sarah be frightened? But that night, when the flat-bottomed riverboat got stuck on a sandbar, Jack felt a little uneasy himself. What if the savages came aboard when the passengers were asleep and helped themselves to a few scalps? Stuff and nonsense, Praiseworthy smiled, shaving himself at the cabin mirror. The steward tells me they're digger Indians, quite tame. They dig for roots and acorns and are a menace to nothing but wasps and grasshoppers, which they consider a delicacy. With one sandbar and another, it was two days before Sacramento City came into view. A shore cannon went off, raising a cloud of dust to announce the arrival of the boat. Townspeople flocked to the river, Praiseworthy and Jack carried their picks and shovels, gold pans, and carpet bags through the crowd. It was the end of June, and the valley shimmered with heat. 
Wooden awnings stretched over the storefronts like eye shades. As they walked along, Jack gazed at the mountains, the great Sierra Nevadas. They stood dark blue and purple against the hot morning sun. That must be where the gold was, thought Jack, and fresh hope shot through him. They were almost there, weren't they? A stage was leaving for the mines at two o'clock. To raise their fare, the butler and the boy had no choice but to sell off a pick and a shovel. Mining tools were in great demand and prices were astonishing. The pick and shovel brought $100 each. After paying their stage fare, Praiseworthy poured the gold dust left over into the tips of all five fingers of his left glove. He had difficulty getting his hand in, but he made it. His left hand felt as heavy as an anvil. The dust was their grub stake, and he had no intention of losing it to some rascal along the way. We ought to carry a gun, praiseworthy, a four-shooter. There's no time for that now, Master Jack. They were the last passengers to board the stagecoach. They had hardly taken their seats when the driver, a bandy-legged man in old buckskins, snapped his whip. The horse bolted, and they were off to the diggings. Jack was squeezed in beside Praiseworthy and a red-faced man wearing a string tie. He was quick to introduce himself as the undertaker. Fletcher's the name, gentlemen. Jonas T. Fletcher of Hangtown. I don't mind telling you that business is brisk in my line of work up there in the diggings. Glad to meet you, yes, sir, socially or professionally, as the case may be. In the seat opposite sat two Frenchmen in brand new jackboots and checked shirts with the creases still in them. Between them and opposite Jack, so that their knees almost touched, sat a man in a dusty linen suit and his hat pulled down over his face. He had been sleeping that way from the moment Praiseworthy and Jack had entered the coach. Don't see how a man can sleep on this road, Jonas T. Fletcher laughed. Maybe he's dead. Ain't that a fine-looking jippy-jappa hat he's got? Must have bought it in Panama. I came across the plains myself, clear from Missouri. Jonas D. Fletcher droned on. The team of horses raised red clouds of dust, and Jack watched the passing sights as best he could. They overtook ox-drawn wagons loaded with stores for the mines and strings of pack mules. The man in the fine straw Jippy Jappa hat slept on. A large ruby ring glistened from his finger. With the jostling of the stage, his coat fell open, and Jack could see the butt of a dueling pistol tucked inside his belt. It was almost an hour before he awoke. His hand rested on the pistol, and he tipped the hat back off his face. He looked straight into Jack's eyes with the faintest of smiles as if he hadn't been asleep at all. Jack very nearly jumped. It was Mr. Cut-Eye Higgins. Well, that concludes Chapter 9. Stay tuned for Chapter 10. <laughs>